Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis, and happy to have you here with me. This podcast, in its short time in existence, has covered some pretty disturbing stuff. I think this one ranks up there at the very top, so please cover up any nearby sensitive ears for the next 40 minutes. I'm joined today by Anthony Flacco, author of the powerful and heartbreaking book, The Road Out of Hell. Sanford Clark, and the true story of the Wineville murders. It's great having you here with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here, Eric. This is an absolutely incredible story for those of my listeners who haven't heard it before. And I'm glad to have you here to share it with us. Sanford Clark, uh, what a journey this kid had. Can you talk about how you initially learned about the Wineville murders and the relationship you built with Sanford Clark's son, the relationship that allowed you to really delve deep into his story. Right. Um, the truth is I hadn't heard anything about this story until Jerry Clark, Sanford's uh, adult son, uh, sought me out. It uh, took place between the years of 1926 and 1928 uh, in the California desert, and just was under my radar. Uh, the he, he sought it out because his father had passed away. He'd been wanting to tell his father's story and was looking for a writer. And he contacted several of us, and we each wrote how we would treat the story if we do it. And uh, he chose me, and, and we went forward. Um, he was vital to the story because he was my direct link to Sanford Clark, who's passed away. And he had all sorts of uh, original photos and documents and everything that I couldn't have gotten through court records alone. So uh, Jerry's cooperation was vital uh, to the point that, I mean, I, I, he's included in the, in the byline of the book, uh, even though I wrote it, just because his input, uh, without it, there, there wouldn't be a book. Your book begins in Canada, where Sanford belongs to a pretty dysfunctional family. Can you talk about him, his, his family, and his life before his Uncle Stuart arrives to get him? Well... Sanford was uh, was the one of two sons. He had a younger brother who was three or four years his junior. He was um, 12 at the time this story begins, living up in uh, Saskatchewan. And the family was horrendously dysfunctional, led by a mother who was uh, vicious and violent and foul. 
and a father who had been thoroughly beaten into submission so that her mental illness dominated the house. At one point, she was paid a visit by her younger brother, Gordon Stewart Northcott, who became the murderer later on. And they had this uh, incestuous relationship, and I don't know if it ever actually involved sex, but it was certainly inappropriate on a romantic and intimate level. And he actually talked her into allowing him to take her boy, Sanford, then 12, down to California because he was going to open a chicken ranch out in the desert and he needed help. And he convinced her that Sanford needed the discipline of some hard work. It's absurd on the face of it that she would entertain that because this guy two years before, uh, at the age of 18, had been thrown out of Canada with his family, run out of Canada because of his inappropriate conduct around children in the neighborhood. And yet, having now come back up from L.A., where he'd been for a couple of years with his parents, uh, his sister actually allowed him <clears throat> to pop Sanford in his car and drive down to California. And in those days, of course, in 1926, if you took a child and drove away, that was all anybody saw. If you got a letter every few weeks, this was called keeping in touch. Back then, even telephones, you might have one or two or three phones in a community area, but this was even before the time that people just had phones in their home, typically. So he basically took that kid out into limbo. Um, then there's the, the chicken ranch itself, which he only had because his parents were trying to get him out of the house because they knew he was nuts. So they, they bought this little chicken ranch out in an area about 40 miles outside L.A. that back then was called Wineville. It had been heavily irrigated, part of the desert that they'd started doing vineyards. And he actually went out there, opened this little chicken ranch, and built it from scratch. These two guys working together, a 21-year-old and a 12-year-old, uh, living in a tent on, on three acres of, of scrubland, surrounded by desert. And uh, the idea was they would build and operate a chicken ranch, which would give uh, Sanford and, and Gordon Stewart Northcott something positive to do. Uh, absolute madness. The, the violence against Sanford, the boy, began almost immediately when he got in the car and they started driving. Before they even got to California, he'd already endured a couple of beatings uh, and been terrorized uh, away from trying to escape. He was in the U.S. illegally, and so he was constantly convinced by Gordon Stewart Northcott that even if he ran, he would just be arrested and then put in a children's prison because he was here illegally, and then he made it a point to describe all the horrible things that were sure to happen to him if he was captured and put in prison. So the kid tried to tough it out in this environment, which at first was just physically abusive with beatings, but as time went on, became sexually abusive with rapings. Um, he tried to escape once, just on foot out into the desert, which of course couldn't have worked, and was beaten half to death for uh, for the for his trouble. And uh, and then eventually, Gordon Stewart Northcott started bringing home little boys, which was he had a penchant for little boys. And then after a while, he stopped driving away with the little boys back into town to drop them off or whatever started locking them in the chicken coops that he and Sanford had built and essentially torturing them for days before then killing them. And uh, it's a horror show beyond believing because he looked like a, a perfectly normal person, normal young man. Uh, he was kind of good-looking. He had a surface charm about himself. Uh, drove a convertible. He dressed well when he wanted to. 
This was a guy who could have convinced just about anybody of anything if they didn't get to know him and operated with impunity out on that little ranch outside this tiny town of Wineville, terrorizing Sanford Clark and picking up local boys who were basically Mexican migrants coming across the border to look for work, send money home to their families. There again, they were completely out of touch with their families, who often would go months or years before they would even realize the child was missing, and who would never know what happened to them. In most cases, it's probably better they didn't. Yeah, and right from the start, Gordon Stewart Northcott begins this process of mental, physical, and eventually, as you mentioned, sexual subjugation. It's horrific beyond belief. And it's family. It's it's a man he's entrusted to. When, When his uncle stops at his grandparents' house just before they arrive at the chicken ranch, I found myself hoping that his grandparents might try and stop what I knew was happening and about to happen. But but as you mentioned, the grandparents are basically in on it and, and already know what kind of monster Stuart is. So they turn their back on their grandson, and especially his grandmother, uh, mostly because of her own disturbing relationship with her son. The dysfunction in this family, it was strange. It was like a disease they had all caught. Uh, even though, other than the marriages that brought this family together, they complete, came from completely disparate backgrounds. It was as if their illness is the thing that was like a magnetic force that brought them together. And Gordon Stewart Northcott's parents were the mirror image of Sanford's parents. You had an extremely dominating mother of clearly mentally deranged and a father completely beaten into submission who, who just couldn't raise his voice to the woman of the house. And I should stress here, these were not strong women. These were not, you know, today's independent. We're not talking about anything like that. These were not women anyone wants to know, male or female, young or old, deranged, uh, uh, tormented people who were able to operate under the guise of being ordinary female mother figures uh, occasionally when they needed to in society, but who were no such thing. They were just demonic in not just their willingness to inflict harm on others to get what they want, but in what they had was a need to inflict harm on others to feel good about themselves. And I think that was what made them uniquely evil. One of the creepiest parts to me, and that there are plenty of creepy parts, is, is this Jekyll and Hyde personality that Sanford's uncle embodies. One minute he's got Sanford under his wing, giving him advice on how to, to get by in the world, And the next moment, he's using this repulsive little girl voice, calling Sanford his little darling, and it becomes a constant, dangerous game of of life and death for Sanford. He has to comply with everything his uncle says unconditionally, predict his moods, or or face a blow to the back of the head with with a shovel, or worse. And there is definitely worse. There's there's a sameness to this kind of sadistic evil, you know, like the Nazis who would force uh, musicians, Jewish musicians, to perform in their camp orchestra for them. So you have these diseased, starving, terrified, traumatized people who may have just endured a beating at the hands of the guards that day, who are then brought in that evening to play for their dance, you know, and they have to throw everything aside and be these musicians. 
um, Sanford was part of the the traumatizing that was done to him was on two different levels. One was the sheer physical violence itself, which just became brutal in the extreme. But the other was that uh, because Gordon Stewart Northcott could flip from being apparently sane and pleasant and even effeminate and seductive into just being this demonic creature, but when he would flip back into his so-called normal mode, you, as his victim, are then required to flip back into that mode with him. No crying, no looking like you hurt, no rubbing the spot you were just hit. You now have to pretend everything's hunky-dory too. And this is the, I think, just the, the demonically genius element of his control that not only can I beat you anytime I want to whatever degree that I want, but as soon as I feel good again, you're going to be my fun partner and we're going to have some more fun playthings to do until the next time I lose my temper. Uh, I can't imagine how anyone could retain their sanity living under that, and he lived under it for two years. So once Sandford had been broken in, his life becomes the thing of nightmares. As you mentioned, Gordon Northcott begins bringing home boys, uh, Mexican boys at first, and, and enslaving them. How did he find them? And can you talk more about his M.O.? Well, um, I, I only can up to a degree because uh, so many of those boys were picked up, dropped off, and no one knew a thing about or they were picked up and murdered and then buried in the desert and knew, no one knew a thing about it. Sanford estimated uh, over 20 boys, and but those are the ones he knew about. And, and, and Gordon Stewart Northcott was often gone from the ranch for days at a time. So what was he doing then? How many people did he harm or kill then? So it, the list is long of his victims. What we know is that he would go around and, and find young people and offer work. And these, these were boys who'd come to America to work. So they think, yeah, oh, ranch, chicken, okay, I'll go out there and I'll do some labor and make some money. That was all it took. Once they got out there, he had them isolated and, and they were brutalized. These chicken sheds that they had built were actually used as dungeons. Um, and, and the horrible thing is Sanford would be forced to help lock these kids up in the dungeons or tie them to their beds or something, and knew for a fact if he didn't cooperate, his fate would be worse. And there were a number of times when he was punished by being buried under the chicken shed with boards stacked on top of him in a, a little a little trough so shallow that all he could do was lie on his back <clears throat> with the boards pressing down on his chest. Less room than you get if you're in a casket. And he would be left there for hours and hours or at one point two days at a time. You could never get away with this today, I don't think. You know, we do hear stories about these creeps who operate a dungeon or something like that, but to, to move in and out with impunity, taking victims in and out with impunity, and keeping this one kid who's only there because of terror, he had the ability to walk away. Uh, he just, the one time he tried it, he was nearly killed for his trouble, and back then he was out in the middle of a desert, in a country where he thought he'd be arrested and put in prison. So... Uh, it was a unique, perfect storm of opportunities for a sadistic killer like Northcott. And this poor kid, Sanford Clark, was just caught right smack in the middle from the age of 12 to the age of 14. Now, it's funny, for me, and I would guess for you, between the ages of 12 and 14 is when I had my biggest growth spurt as a kid. You know, I'm, I probably shot up, I don't know, four or five inches during those years. Uh, Sanford didn't grow at all and actually lost weight over those two years. And it was because of the sheer trauma 
of his situation. The, the body didn't have enough energy to produce growth. So the, the effects on him were that profound and that deeply physical. It's, it's, it's affecting you at the, at the growth level, the bone level, the hormone level uh, of, of living in hell. I can't, how can hell be, be any worse, a real hell, you know? How could it have been any worse? The, the depths of despair this kid knew. Now, I should, I should add here, I wouldn't be even telling you this story, <clears throat> and I certainly wouldn't have written this book if it weren't for the fact that I know where the ending goes, and it's the ending that makes the story worthwhile, because if you just go into these murders, it'll just break your heart and leave you nothing. It's like studying Charles Manson. There's nothing to learn. All you see is cruelty heaped upon cruelty with an absolute lack of conscience, and once you know that, there's nothing more to really know about this killer. But, oh, man, this kid and the way he came through this and the way he then lived his life, um, it was tremendously humbling for me to to research this, to, to know Jerry and to, it, through him, get to know Sanford because I don't think I could have done it. I mean, uh, and this was a guy, he, he wasn't big, he wasn't strong, he wasn't particularly good-looking, he wasn't particularly uh, smart. He was smart enough, but he was no brilliant guy. He had nothing that you would think of as a great personal reserve that you might draw upon. He was just this poor kid nobody seemed to like when he was small. And yet, he found in himself the ability to come through this and over a period of 10 or 15 years actually live it down uh, and, and become in his own community where people knew about his past and knew what had happened and initially reviled him when he showed up, he worked his way back into the good graces of all those people and became a loved and revered and respected figure for no other reason than the way he conducted himself. Right. Imagine going through this horror and still being able to find it in yourself to like people, you know, to want to seek out people, to help people, to trust people all of which he's known to have done, you know, in spades, that, I think, is what makes this an important story, and not just, you know, this awful crime thing about a crazy guy, because it's not really about this killer, it's about this kid, and, and it's about the man he became. Absolutely. I, I mean, I was thinking about the book Unbroken as I was reading yours, and it's, it's similar in the sense that you're upset and sickened that one human being could treat others so terribly and for so long. But, but the message at the end is really uplifting. And you realize what the human spirit is capable of after it's broken like that and where it can go from there. Well, he did it with, this was not a guy who was, uh, you know, particularly religious, and I believe after this experience he was driven into atheism because he just couldn't imagine how a God would allow this, and I certainly don't address his religious thoughts one way or another, but I only mention it so that all he had to recover with was grit, plain old grit, you know, grit your teeth, clench your fists, put your head down, and move forward no matter how strong the wind gets, and that's what the guy did. Um, I mean, I've sort of skipped ahead a little bit, but as we know, he was eventually sprung from the ranch. Gordon Stewart Northcott was eventually caught. Uh, if you've uh, seen the movie, um, oh boy, I'm blanking on the title. The Changeling. Changeling, yes, Clint Eastwood did uh, a great job of telling the, the murder part of the story. But this book is billed as the backstory to it because you not only get how that all came about, but where it went afterwards. What happened to this kid after he gets sprung? Well, he gets uh, sentenced 
to a juvenile offender's home, which at that time was a very progressive and forward-thinking place. It was a work ranch, not a prison, uh, where the the kids were all protected in in a good environment. And they only sent him there because they knew if they sent him back to Canada, he had no family. His mother's nuts. Uh, and, and, of course, was caught in the aftermath of the murders anyway. He'd just be an orphan back there. So rather than throwing him into that system, they essentially gave him a safe place to go, to recover, to go to school, to learn trade, all of which he did. At the age of 18, then, he was sprung, and they even, quote, unquote, deported him back to Canada. Now, by this time, everybody knew his story, and it wasn't a deportation of anger. It was a free ride back home to Canada, which he got. But then once he got back to that neighborhood, um, Saskatoon was the the town, uh, everybody there, of course, had read the papers, and they knew that not only had he been the victim of this killer, but that he had helped to kill uh, at least two of the kids, that he had uh, chopped up one body and burned it and set it on fire, I suppose. They knew these things about him. And nuance was not a big thing back then. There was no true crime market that we have today. People just didn't know about this stuff. Uh, you could go your whole life and never hear that this kind of human being was, was on the planet. The way today, you, know, you can't get away from it. And, and yet he went back, and, uh, and although he was reviled and rejected at first, of course, he just kept smiling to people, kept engaging with them. Um, the war broke out. He enlisted in the war, became a war hero. He was part of, a, of, a, of an artillery crew operating a huge a cannon. Um, and it was, it was odd because he was the captain of that crew, and they would remark that he just he never seemed afraid. Uh, every, these other guys are terror, you know. They're just crapping themselves over this, this horrible artillery fire. And he'd be there whistling and, and loading and you know, keeping his other guys' spirits up. And... I'm, I didn't have the chance to ask him, but I'm certain the answer was, compared to what he'd been through, this was a walk in the park, and he knew if he died, it would just get hit with a bomb anyway, and that's not going to hurt. This is a guy who's been thrown in pits, <laughs> you know, and, and left there with the chicken shit. Uh, so he, he got through the war just fine. And coming back from the war then, this entitled him under Canada's uh, structure to a government job, and he took a job as a local mailman right there in his hometown. Now, here's a guy who still most of the community hasn't had a chance to get to know yet. People being gossips that we are, they all knew about the murders by then and what had happened. And he had to then go from house to house every day delivering mail to people who would revile him or just turn the backs or refuse to to look at him, to address him. But he just kept it up and he kept up the smiling and the waving and the whistling and eventually people started warming to him. As they warmed to him, they got to know him. As they got to know him, they began to embrace him. Uh, over a period of years, he not only was very popular with the, with the postal department, but he became a figure at the local uh, Western Museum and he would conduct tours for people. Everybody loved it. He was a cheerful guy. He was Working his way back, it took years to do it and, and until he became this beloved local figure. And the real capper to that part is, it wasn't that he had gotten over it, or it wasn't that he was some kind of guy who could shrug off those sorts of horrors. He was tormented every single day of his life. He suffered from nightmares and insomnia for the rest of his life. Uh, he secretly blamed himself, even though he knew legally and everything else it wasn't his fault. You know, he couldn't get away from the, the self-judgment. On his deathbed, when his son said, I love you, Dad, he looked back at him and said, why would you? Because of all this. And yet, 
all the son had ever known was a loving and attentive and understanding father. So he was able to reclaim his decency, but he never outran his demons. And I think it makes his decency even more admirable when you think about the level of torment he was carrying behind that face, behind that smile. Back after a word from our sponsors. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned to the interview. And I don't want to dwell too much on the really bad stuff here. I think we've painted a pretty clear picture of what this, this kid went through. And the book goes into much further detail, and I recommend listeners get your book to get the full scope of the story. But... I do want to go back to his captivity, and this pertains some to what you just talked about, Sanford Clark's redemption. There, there comes a moment in his story when he has to make a decision, one very important to him, and to back up just a little bit, again, for context, I need to explain that his uncle's craziness and sadism continue to escalate after these murders of most likely migrant, very untraceable young boys. His mental faculties are slipping even further. And while the first kidnappings and murders cause no alarm, he gets it into his head to start kidnapping people he knows, boys with families in the community. And finally, he's so whacked out of his mind that he lures an entire family to the farm and asks Sanford for help in his plans. And this decision that Sanford Clark makes is incredibly powerful. Can you talk about this this pivotal moment for him? Well, the decision was Sanford's conscience and Sanford's decency meeting his abject despair. He got to the point where he figured he was probably going to get killed for doing this, but he had to at least try living without doing it 
in his mind at the moment was worse than being killed. So um, Gordon Stewart Northcott, who is by this point in the story a flaming psychopath, has uh, stopped from bringing in local migrant boys to bringing in local residents, which at that time meant crossing over into the white community, who were the residents there at the time, and bringing in kids, as you say, who are connected now. They have families. They have people who know them. They have people who wonder where they are if they don't show up for dinner, which is an entirely different crowd than the kids who might go weeks without sending a letter home. Uh, and he, he, the Winslow brothers are the two that he that he got, and that's the their uh, Walter Collins is the one who's fe- featured in the movie Changeling, and those were the local white kids. But then, then Gordon Stewart Northcott one comes home. Stewart uh, knows nothing about this. Uh, he he brings he brings in four people, mother, a father, and kids to the house, and and says to Sanford. Uh, yeah, well, that's going to be our next. Thing. He, he's going to he's going to kill the whole family. He wants Sanford to cooperate by keeping the boys out in the the uh, chicken yard, uh, looking at candling eggs or something, while uh, he dispatches the parents. Uh, and this whole crazy plan to take out this whole family of people. Uh, beyond this point, I don't even think he has a purpose. You know. Uh, I, I guess he could have raped them all. I don't know, but but it was just so nuts that Sanford at first tries to just discourage him. Gee, you know, Uncle Stewart, I don't know. They, they might recognize us. You know, they, they they're local people, and, but Stewart just will not back down and uh, uh, tells him, "No, we're, we're doing this." And so uh, Sanford puts his foot down and won't help. And uh, the family does eventually. They 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 think they're there uh, auditioning for a job to be managers at the ranch. Is is the ruse that was brought them out there, and they eventually think the interview part is over, and they get in their car and they drive away, having no idea they came within just a hair's breadth of the whole family being slaughtered. And uh, Sanford took his punishment. Uh, he did survive it, and it was I think when his. When he finally got to the point where every tormented soul gets, if you aren't broken by it completely, if you don't die, then at some point something in you says enough. Um, even if you don't think you're protecting yourself anymore, enough, they're going to kill me now, but I'm just, I'm just not going to do any more of this. He reached that point. Um, and it may be in reaching that point he also found something of his own resolve that he later wound up having to live on years and years and years of it by feeling how deep his strength could run when it needed to. And for me, the, the, the reason I consider the book The Story to be so important, the reason I was so excited once I saw what this story was and realized, I mean, I got the chance to actually write this thing, is because it leaves all of us with the same knowledge. I believe if you'll take the journey with this book, what you come to is the same thing he came to, which is the assurance that whoever you may be, whether you think of yourself as a strong person or not, whether you feel like you've been able to be a courageous person when you needed to or not, we all at some times wonder how well we could stand up under these kinds of, of horrors, which we know can randomly fall onto innocent people any old time. And the lesson is we're all much, much stronger than we think. Uh, it's just that we happen to live lives that most of the time don't make us call upon that strength. And we may lose touch with the fact that it's there, but it's still there. 
And if a guy like Sanford can do it, then a guy like you can do it. A guy like me can do it. And to me, that's what makes this story most worthwhile. That long after you've shaken your head at how crazy Gordon Stewart Northcott was, and long after your heart breaks for these poor boys, what a way to go, uh, alone on a ranch like that, uh, being tormented by a monster, uh, you remember this survivor who just basically crawled out of the wreckage of this place, uh, had nothing to look forward to, nowhere to go, no family. He's going to go back to a community who thinks he's just a murdering kid, but he finds a way to go on and and prosper to live a good life. He was married to the same woman for over 50 years. Uh, how many people can do that who've had the best of lives? Um, he couldn't. His wife couldn't have children on her own, so they adopted the two sons. Uh, Jerry Clark, who, who brought the book to me, was an adopted son, uh, not a son by birth. And what they did was they went to the orphanage and they got two of the ones that are supposed to be the, the non-adoptables or the hard-to-adopt who are three and over because everybody wants the babies. Well, they took home the three-year-old and the six-year-old. What a phenomenal guy. And, and as Jerry Clark said, gave Jerry Clark a life that he wouldn't have had. He still had enough decency. He had enough sanity to want to do this. And when we remember, he was just this little kid this little person of ordinary ability, ordinary appearance. You'd walk by him and, and never think a thing about it. But he did all this stuff. He had all that power. Imagine imagine him as a grown man now. He's back in Saskatoon. And one of the things he does, uh, he bought a, a double lot. Property was cheap then for his house. Built the house uh, on, on one part of the lot. The other was kept vacant. And every winter, throughout the winter long, he would he, he plowed it flat. He would flood it. And the neighborhood kids would all come and play hockey there. Uh, it got to the point where the fire department would chip in to help. They'd send a truck down with water to flood it for the kids. And this became a community thing. From this guy who spent his childhood in chicken pits and, and being forced to commit murder. It's a reservoir of decency that's inspiring to all of us, in my opinion. You know, And that's why I remain enthused about this story. I'll always be grateful I had a chance to, to write it. I have to say that the thing that moved me the most in your book, more than anything else, was the love that Sanford shared with his big sister, Jessie. Well, yes, and you know, shame on me for letting her be dropped out of the conversation this far, because this is, this is the, your female heroine of the story. Um, she was his older sister. Uh, 19 at the time, everything finally broke out and, and had just moved out of the house. As soon as she turned 18, she got out of there, living on her own, working as a secretary in town. And in order to keep up the ruse, Gordon Stewart Northcott had forced Sanford on a number of occasions to write these cheerful letters home filled with crap about what he was supposedly doing and how well he was being taken care of. Jesse became more and more suspicious because, one, she would send him letters and ask questions which he would never answer. And two, although the handwriting she recognized was her brother's handwriting, just the voice of it. Now, she wasn't the person who thinks about narrative voices, but that's what she was hearing. She was hearing this author is not the same as the author that ought to be writing this stuff, because it wasn't. He was taking dictation from Gordon Stewart Northcott, um, and eventually she became suspicious. Also, at the end of the second year there, she noticed he's supposed to be in school. They keep telling me he's in school, but his handwriting isn't getting any better. Now, that, those are the things that consciously made her then start directing an inquiry. What's really going on with my little brother? But I think a part of her, uh, an intuitive part of her, 
already. I mean, she saw Gordon Stewart not cut when he was around the house. She knew his reputation. Um, I think the hairs were already up on the back of her neck, but she just needed some rational justification. Well, she got it through these letters. She couldn't get the parents, of course, to help at all. So she saved up a little bit of money that she had from this secretarial job and, and, uh, and, and took a bus to the coastline and then a cheap ship down to Los Angeles and came out to see was Sam, got a car and came out to, to Wineville to see what the hell was going on with her brother. And, and this is 1928 and she's 19 years old in a foreign country. She doesn't have a visa either. And she comes walking in there like gangbusters, uh, waits until Gordon's uh, out of the room and takes her brother aside and says, what the hell is going on here? It takes several days before he can finally loosen up. Initially, he denies everything because he's terrified if he tells her anything, Gordon Stewart Northcott will kill her. And this is his, his sister is the only human contact he really has in his life of anybody who actually cares about him. Uh, and she cares deeply. Somehow these two were spared the, the insanity that seems to just be shared by everyone else on both sides of the family. So they had the brotherhood of sanity that, that bonded them as well. Well, once she finally realized what was going on, he told her just enough so that she knew there was trouble. She still didn't know about the murders. She left, went back to Canada because she couldn't confront Gordon Stewart Northcott and reported it to the authorities there who then contacted the sheriff back down here and began the investigation, which would end with the arrests. Um, she came very close to being killed by Gordon Stewart Knockup before she left the ranch. She pushed him much too far in demanding answers uh, for when you know who this guy is, but she just wouldn't back off. So it, she was the one who actually got this thing stopped then. Now, Gordon Stewart Northcott by then was deteriorating so badly, it wasn't going to go on too much longer anyway. I mean, he was going to wind up just carving people up on the sidewalk. You know, he seemed to have no sense of restraint left at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I see YouTube videos today of jihadists carving people up on the street with impunity, I think, really, well, that was the next step for Gordon Stewart Northcott. He'd done everything else. And he seemed to keep needing to up the ante to get his adrenaline rush. So I think the next thing was to be to do this with witnesses. That's where Jesse stopped him. So The Road Out of Hell reads like a novel. We get to hear Sanford's inner thoughts as he experiences these horrors firsthand. Emotionally, very effective, no question. But you obviously weren't privy to what Sanford Clark was thinking. And there are some authors that, that shy away from taking creative license with a historical person. Can I ask you, if, if you don't mind, why you decided that this was the way you wanted the story of Sanford Clark to be told? Well, I think most of those authors are, are journalists, which I'm really not. Uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a writer. Uh, I've never done journalism per se. Um, and so we operate by a different set of standards, uh, or what used to be journalistic standards. I don't know what journalistic standards are anymore. Um, but the way I do it, it's called a nonfiction novel. And uh, props to Truman Capote, who actually invented this particular art form. Um, and uh, the idea is that you, you base the entire story on fact. You document what you're doing. You get a photographic effort, uh, evidence, so that the audience knows that it, it truly is a true story. The, the personal side, then, is the big question. How far do you go into a person's thoughts 
and their statements. Now, if you have very good historical record, you can get a lot of that documented, um, which, which I was able to do. Lots of the dialogue that I have in there is taken directly from Sanford's report of things or from the court reports. Then after that, there's, all right, now there's the issue of their thoughts. Uh, if you're truly journalistic, you don't go in their heads because you're not a mind reader. But this is a nonfiction novel, which means I do go in their heads, but it has to be honest and fair. I don't invent anything out of whole cloth. Everything he is said to do or think or say comes from a point of evidence there. Because that, to me, that would be the line that's not right to cross. When I start just riffing on someone else's life experience, particularly when it involves this kind of a horror show. So I will fictionalize, but only within boundaries of what I can show and what I can document are honest and fair for this guy and not just because I think it makes a cool scene for the book. I appreciate your motivations and perspectives. Can I ask you, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'd love to. There are two, but unfortunately, each one has me blocked right now. Um, I've sold a new novel, which is completely a departure, but it's a sci-fi comic novel, and so I've done it under a different name, and I can't say the author's name because it's going it's to be a true pen name. Right now, I'm writing, and I'm on deadline for a book um, that I'm not allowed to announce because the publisher is going to do a formal announcement with the woman who is the figure of this book. Once again, it's a real person whose story I'm telling, and they're going to do a big announcement stuff with her, so I can't even go on Facebook or anything about it. But I'm very excited about it, and it's a similar story in the sense that it begins in this in this horror show. Only this one is modern day. We've all we all know this event, and follows a very specific individual through the story, and and I think tells a much larger story because of the way this individual behaved, of what happened to her, and then how she reacted. Uh, like Sanford Clark, she's someone I just, the more I know this person, I admire her tremendously. And the cool part is this is somebody who is uh, alive today. You know, I can actually call on the phone and ask questions and not of a second or a third source. Um, so it's a pleasure to be able to do that. And damn it, I'm sorry. I can't, I'd love to talk about it more. I'm so enthused. But really, <laughs> they've got this thing under embargo for now, and I have to wait uh, two more months before we can before we can talk. For listeners interested in your work or more about your books, where do you suggest they go? Well, I, I do have a website, which is just anthonyflacco.com, and uh, you can see all kinds of stuff there. Uh, of course, I have a Facebook page, too, and uh, I guess more personal stuff uh, there. And um, my website has an email address, so I'm, I'm pretty easy to get to. I, I like communicating with people who've read my stuff. I really like it when they write in, and I, and I, I never ignore someone when they write. Um, I get a troll now and then. I ignore them. But anybody who has a reasonable good spirit mm -hmm. into what they write, I always make it a point to respond to them. Mr. Anthony Flacco, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Eric. It's been great talking to you. So I realized after our interview was over that I'd neglected to ask a question to Anthony Flacco about the fate of Gordon Stewart Northcott, a.k.a. Uncle Stewart. So to summarize, he was tried and convicted on February 8, 1929, for murdering the Winslow brothers. During a circus of a trial, Gordon Northcott fired his own lawyers and represented himself. In what could have been utter emotional devastation for Sanford Clark, the boy is called to testify with his uncle asking the questions. 
However, Sanford, the eternal trooper that he was, was eager to face and expose his captor, unmasking what he called his Uncle Stuart's benign affability. If his Uncle Stuart thought he could continue to control him on the stand, he could not. Sanford Clark answered every question firmly and directly. He flustered his uncle to the point where he started skipping from topic to topic without any reason or direction. Gordon Northcott's decision to represent himself was not a smart one. He was sentenced to hang and did so on October 2, 1930. To the end, he refused to give up where he disposed of the bodies, and families of 20-plus children had no closure for their losses. Some small satisfaction, Northcott had to be carried up the steps of the scaffold, blindfolded at his own request, too much of a coward to want to take in the last few moments of his life. He cried uncontrollably and yelled out, No, don't, just before the trapdoor was released. His neck didn't break either. He stayed alive as, as he slowly strangled until the guards came forward and pulled down his legs to hasten his demise. And as Mr. Flacco so eloquently explained, Sanford Clark lived a shining example of how rehabilitation can work, how someone who fought his way out of the depths of despair could end up living a noble, wonderful life. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.